This podcast was made possible by the Guilford Anti-Racism Alliance in collaboration with Fusion Films. Doing Our Work, Session 13, Racial Disparities in Greensboro Housing. On the 49th anniversary of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., residents of Greensboro, North Carolina gather to listen to retired economics professor Larry Morse as he gives a brief history of the city's racial disparities in housing. Please welcome Dr. Larry Morse. Thank you, Tricia. Um, tonight I'm going to run us through some history because we can't understand where we are now unless we have some comprehension of the history of the institutions that have brought us to where we are. So we're going to go through, I'm going to follow two strands of primarily federal policy and then we'll get to the particulars of Greensboro. But the federal will follow two routes. One is the ways in which federal policies, federal legislation and agencies made it more difficult for blacks to become homeowners and, the, and led to segregation and urban decay in the process in certain areas of the city. The second part is ways in which federal programs facilitated, made it easier, was an affirmative action program in effect for whites to increase their ability to buy homes. I want to take a minute to draw a distinction so that we're clear between the differences between income and wealth. Income is, for most of us, our paychecks. For some of us, our Social Security check and our retirement benefits. And those of you who are still working, keep working. We've got to keep the system <laughs> solvent. Income has the difficulty of being relatively fragile in two ways. One, it's not something you can pass on. I can't pass on my job to my brother or to a cousin. It's also fragile in the sense that if I get hit by a car on my way to the office on my bicycle and I'm out for six months, my income might go to drop to zero for six months. Wealth, on the other hand, so Income is about day-to-day -day survival. It's what feeds us, pays the mortgage, pays for the food, clothing. Wealth is different. I like to think of wealth as getting ahead money. With wealth, and it consists of two components, tangible property, homes, cars, furniture, and intangible property, like money at the bank, if you own stocks, if you own bonds, that's wealth. The advantage of wealth is it tends to be more durable. Yes, it can go up and down in value. Witness the housing crisis we had. Same with stocks and bonds. 
but it has the advantage that we can pass it on to the next generation. And more importantly, it allows us as families, when we have wealth, to make plans and have a reasonable expectation that we can complete those plans. A reason that I want a historical perspective is we've got two differences. One is looking at median income, which for whites is 1.6 times as much. So that mean, would mean if for the typical white household, they earn $1,000. For a black, that would be $620. Median wealth is very, very different. The ratio is 12.2. So that means for the white household that has, typical white household at the median that has $1,000 in wealth, the typical black household at the median will have $80. We can't understand the differences between income and this enormous disparity in wealth without understanding the history that produced those differences. The policies I'm going to run through for the federal government will they have various origins, and I won't go down that path. Some of it can be attributed to Southern Democrats in the 30s. Some of it can be true, be dedicated, um, pointed to the Jim Crow attitudes and policies that were present at the time. We can also point to corporate and persons of wealth managing and having their say in Congress beyond what the rest of us have. But what's, this, what's the connection between that discussion that I had about wealth and housing? Housing's a vehicle for accumulation of wealth. And for, it allows the family to have a tangible asset that you can take to the bank and you can do things that you couldn't do otherwise. You can maybe start a business, you can maybe send a kid to school. In other words, you can take out a loan. We have some advantages when we own homes. We can deduct the interest rates and federal taxes from, and we can also get lost in our slide. Um, so housing has its advantages. So I want to start with the federal policies that go back to 1933. By 1933, MLK was not born yet. 49 years ago today, he was assassinated, and we need to remember that. The home, in 1933, we're talking the Depression, approximately half of homeowners were having trouble meeting their mortgage payments. So the federal government sponsored a corporation 
called the Homeowners Loan Corporation that gave loans, gave about a million loans to help people stay in their homes. A year later, the Federal Housing Administration picked up where the Homeowners Loan Corporation had left off. One of the things that the Homeowners Loan Corporation did was to create what we today call redlining maps. They divided up neighborhoods in terms of what we would say today were their racial stability. Banks were encouraged to make loans in stable white neighborhoods, and they were strongly urged to not make loans in black neighborhoods. And in unstable and changing neighborhoods, it was a very questionable investment. The Federal Housing Administration picked up the redlining practices of the Homeowners Loan Association, Loan Corporation. They, these practices led to um, increasing residential segregation and to urban decay. As the FHA put it in their 1938 underwriting manual, they warned against insuring properties that would be used by, quote, inharmonious racial groups, and declared that for stability of a neighborhood, quote, properties should continue to be occupied by the same social and racial classes. This is a 1935 map created by the FHA of Greensboro. Green was best, it's made up 16% of the city. Blue, still desirable, 13%. Yellow, definitely declining, 50% of the city. Red, hazardous, 21%. Hence the term redlining. I'll return to this map, but if for now you can, in your mind, impose over this where whites and blacks live, this is a pretty good starting point. Or let's say a very unfortunate starting point. Affirmative action for, well, let me go back to one other point about um, the, the Homeowners Loan Corporation. They made approximately a million loans. None went to blacks. I mean, they had said that those investing in those areas was financially insecure. Why would they give loans there? Well, we can have some answers about why that was true. 
federal affirmative action that helped whites accumulate wealth, including being able to buy a home. 1935, we get the Social Security Act. We're all familiar with that. I'll come back to them and link them together. The National Labor Relations Act. This guaranteed the workers, workers the right to form unions. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 guaranteed a minimum, established the federal minimum wage and guaranteed overtime payment for overtime work. I'll get to the GI Bill of Rights in a minute. What did the first three have in common? What they had in common was domestic workers and agricultural workers were not allowed to participate in those programs. 1933, where were most blacks living? In the South. The Great Migration North hadn't happened yet. That's going to come later, primarily around World War II. There had been some during World War I. What were most men doing, most black men doing in the South? <coughs> Agricultural labor. What were most black women doing? Domestic labor. When we say that the women's movement greatly increased women's participation in the labor force, that's true, but it's a partial truth. Because what it ignores is there has always been an enormous presence of black women in the labor markets. The National Labor Relations Act. The initial legislation said, the initial draft said, that if, an, if a union had segregated locals, that they weren't guaranteed the right to the federal guarantee of ability to unionize. And again, organized uh, domestic workers and agricultural workers were denied. No minimum pay, no guaranteed overtime for domestic and agricultural workers. So what were the consequences of leaving out the domestic and ag agricultural workers? Approximately two-thirds of blacks were not able to participate in these rather important federal programs. And roughly 20% of whites were denied access to these programs. So begin to think about what these do. If you have now Social Security, for most households, particularly in frightening times like the Great Depression, there was serious, assuming you could do some saving, a serious concern would be, what's our retirement going to be? But now if you've got Social Security, you can rethink what maybe you'll do with your savings. Maybe you can save toward a down payment on a house. Being a member of a union might mean a 10, 15, 18% wage premium. That can move in the direction of 
being able to save, being able to make a down payment on a home. And certainly the Fair Labor Standards Act of guaranteed a minimum wage and guaranteed overtime pay also moved the household in the direction of a greater flow of income and a greater ability to save and to move in the direction of buying a home. In 1944, we had the GI Bill of Rights, which guaranteed or provided many benefits to veterans. It's one of the best things we ever did in terms of educating the American workforce. There were also VA loans that were available for folks to buy homes. One problem with the jobs program is that black vets returning home were, for the most part, limited to coming to institutions like A&T. They weren't accepted at UNCG. They weren't accepted at Guilford. So there are thousands of vets that were unable to use their higher education possibilities through the GI Bill of Rights. In terms of going into work programs. One of the things Congress had done without using the term race, they said that decisions about these programs would be made by local boards, which they understood to mean that local priorities would be understood and kept in place. So if you were a black vet, and the programs that you were allowed to go into were mainly programs that were reflective of what you'd been doing in the armed services. So if you weren't a welder, or if you weren't a mechanic, or a pilot, which were typically white jobs, you couldn't go into those areas. But if you'd worked in kitchens and doing other basic labor, that's the direction that you were channeled into. By 1962, when we put together all the money that FHA and the VA made available for loans, 98% of that went to whites. Homeownership and wealth. These are data from, 19, from 2013. That seems a little old, but what I and other economists in the room tend to believe in are data, Bob, my good friend, um, data that are put out by the Federal Reserve that does their every three years survey of consumer finances. So at that point, 73% of whites owned a home, 44% of blacks owned a home. Both groups, before the housing crisis, whites was approximately 100, I'm sorry, approximately 80%, blacks was, was 50%. And then the crisis knocked out some of that. The home for whites represents 39 for the median household represents 39% of their wealth. 
and for blacks, 53% of their wealth. How come it's slower for whites? Well, if we, yeah, we, we got to draw back, wheel back to, if you've got 12 times the amount of wealth, you've got more opportunity, you've got more resources, you can diversify what you own. So with whites owning stocks, bonds, maybe businesses, then that means that the home, which is still significant, 39%, the home is not as important as it is for black homeowners. Continuing the chronology, 1960, President Kennedy in an executive order tells the FHA and all federal agencies that they're to oppose discrimination in federally sponsored housing. FHA apparently never sent the executive order out to their field offices. And so the 98% that I just quoted, that was of $120 billion in loans that were made, to, made by the FHA for new homes or made under the GI Bill. They went to white homeowners. 1968, we have the Fair Housing Act, which was designed to give FHA the responsibility of ferreting out acts of discrimination in housing. The problem is the bill never gave them any, gave the agency any enforcement power. 1974, we have the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which I described as a story of multiple efforts to resist the act. What the act required was that banks were not to discriminate in their mortgage loans or in other loans in general, but in particular in mortgages. So the banks were to keep records of the race of applicants and keep records of those who were rejected and the race of those who were approved. The banks decided they didn't want to do that. So they didn't. In 81, um, so I'm sorry, in 76, eight civil rights groups get together and sue that the government require that the um, banks collect the data. And so the, um, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation and the Home Loan Bank Board were required to obey the 1974 law. So the banks, and to, so the banks were to keep the records. And while the civil rights groups won their suit in 1981, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation seats keeping race records when the court order ran out. An earlier speaker, well, and then we had Ronald Reagan who used the Paper Reduction Act 
to stop HUD from gathering data on racial identity. A couple of speakers ago, we had um, someone talking about his book, Deep Denial. This is a pretty serious case of deep denial. This went on for some time, some considerable resistance. So we're almost to Greensboro. Don't give up. <laughs> what were black experiences during the recent housing crisis? One piece that's important is the banks, and we have established, they've been taken to court over this, their internal memos that have been revealed, the banks and investment houses made a strategic push to get blacks into subprime loans. What are the consequences of being put, and in some cases we also have evidence of this, or the, that some black households who qualified for a regular loan were nonetheless told the best we can do for you is a subprime loan. What's the consequence of being in a subprime loan? Higher interest rates, typically larger fees, and a much greater likelihood of being foreclosed. The Durham-based Center for Responsible Lending estimated that over the lifetime of a mortgage, a subprime loan borrower would pay $35,000 more than had the loan been a conventional loan. So blacks were more likely to lose their homes in the housing crisis. During the upswing, before we got to the housing crisis, because of housing segregation, limiting markets, the white homes appreciated in percentage terms much more than did black homes. And during the downturn, the black homes depreciated at a faster, higher percentage rate than was true of white homes. And think about the consequences of that. For the black household, over half the wealth is in the home. So a serious, a slow ride up and a serious drop off makes an enormous difference in your overall wealth position. Whereas if you're white and roughly less than 40% is in the home, it's easier to ride it out. So welcome home, Greensboro. So that was the federal, understand that, that folks who were applying for loans, well, we saw the FHA map. That was happening here as well, all right? And what was happening to vets from North Carolina, from Greensboro, that was happening here, all right? But we did some, as a city, we did some, a couple of extra things. 
We, like a number of other places, from 1914 to 1929, there was a city ordinance that pro prohibited blacks from moving into white neighborhoods. <coughs> then we had, we're, we're familiar, if, if you live in a development, you might have restrictive covenants on your deed. And these may be things like how far back the house is to be from the road. You're not supposed to leave junk cars in your front lawn, things like this. And, but these become things that are on the deed and not on the owner. So those are requirements that travel with the property. Restrictive racial covenants had similar properties. The racial covenants, and they existed in Greensboro, they kept homeowners from selling their homes to blacks. And some of the houses in Irving Park, Lindley Park, Sedgefield, Starmont, Sunset Hills, and Westerwood had these. On reading Sunset Hills, I went down to the bank, pulled out our deed and the other documents, and on the l paper that the lawyer filled out on the line for restrictive covenants, said none. Okay. In 1948, the Supreme Court said that restrictive, racially restrictive covenants could not be enforced. Interestingly enough, the FHA in 1948 and for a number of years thereafter still thought that using restrictive covenants was a good idea on the properties that the banks should be advised, yes, you can make loans there. So this is a challenge, but it's, so what I've put up is Again, the, the FHA loan, uh, redlining and the racial despair, the, the ra a racial map. The darkest brown are areas that are 96 to 100%, and then as the color drops off, the percentage black declines and the percentage white grows. Sorry. No, that's fine. All right. So the darkest of the, of the colors in that map are the neighborhoods that are essentially all white. And as the color gets lighter, the percentage white drops off and the percentage black, obviously, and Hispanic persons of color, that goes up. I'm sorry. Yes, thank you very much. I can read up there, but he can't hear me from here. So what, what, what do you want? You want to hear me or you want inaccurate information or both? Okay, so I think we got that straightened up. All right, I'm doing the best I can. That's, I mean, the pay we get, what can you... Um, so, 
got saddled with some serious stuff. I mean, there's a lot of overlap between what was going on in 35, what the FHA was doing, and what we see, what we see today. Some of the differences in the maps is the, physically the map for Greensboro now is larger because we've done a lot of annexing since 1935. How have we done in other ways in terms of how black homeowners or blacks and whites seeking lodging are treated? Well, one of the studies that Stephen Sills, his group did, and I think Stephen, he provided the um, population map for me. Stephen is the director of the Center for Housing and Community Studies over at UNCG. He did a study of, it's fairly common to try to ferret out discrimination in housing to use testers who, in this case, are individuals making phone calls and they're chosen in part by how what we call accent, accented callers they are. In other words, do we expect that the person at the other end of the line will think the person that I'm talking to is white or do they think the person at the other end of the line is black? So, what were their results? The white callers, or excuse me, the black callers compared to the white callers were less likely to have their calls returned, less likely to be told the unit's still available, more likely to be quoted a higher rent, and less likely to be encouraged to visit. That's 2012. Probably not much change. Money again. Banks. Sills and Company did another study of banks in the High Point Greensboro metropolitan area. Now, whether you're accepted or rejected for a mortgage is going to depend on prime, among a number of things, but certainly one thing that's going to matter is how much money are you trying to borrow? And secondly, what's your income? And what's the ratio between those two? Well, I say this glibly, we can statistically control for this. I taught statistics at A&T. Um, and what Sills found was that the probability of a black mortgage applicant would be approved was 30 or rounded off, 39% lower than for whites after statistically controlling for income and loan amount. Urban renewal, sometimes known as Negro removal. Greensboro, I'm going to talk about um, Two, in, two locations in which we had urban renewal. These were both in the 60s. A major one was East Market Street. It was major in the sense that it was a hub of black life at that time. 
there were a number of businesses along the East Market Street. But the city in the urban renewal demolished, rounded off 500 structures. Over 400 families had to be uh, relocated. And the city um, or had enough income to, to move out of public housing. And a number of the businesses that were demolished weren't accommodated in the Cumberland Shopping Center, which is there at Murrow and, and Market Street. How controversial was it? Well, you might think, my god, they wiped out all that stuff. But there was, the city had not adequately policed the standards for housing, the codes that they have for housing. They had not done a good job of keeping up and maintaining the infrastructure. So the city was in part responsible for the degradation of the neighborhood. Warnersville. How many of you are familiar with Warnersville? Warnersville is named for Yardley Warner, who in eight, a Pennsylvania Quaker, who in 1865-66 bought 35 acres of land south of Greensboro with the intention, which he carried out, to make land available for blacks, newly freed slaves, to buy and establish homes. Warnersville became a very substantial in the black community neighborhood. There was a business community and a lot of prominent families lived there. Urban renewal, by then, again, same story. The city hadn't really policed the building codes, hadn't kept up the infrastructure, and so essentially all of Warnersville was leveled. But in both instances, East Market Street and Warnersville, the community was simultaneously was split with some people thinking all this demolition wasn't good, others thinking we need to get rid of it, we need to move on, we're going to get better structures. So it was imposed, but there were community conversations about it. One thing that I'll mention of bringing it up to 2016, we recently approved a bond referendum. There were four pieces, four packages to that. One of them was for housing. City staff had proposed to city council that $34 million go into housing. And they had six categories, code reinforcement, code repairs, and so on. Council cut the amount down to, 50, to $25 million, lopped off $9 million. Meanwhile, just to, in parallel, $25 million was proposed by staff and kept by council to do infrastructure improvements 
in downtown. So as much as being spent in the bond <coughs> referendum on improvements downtown as we're spending on housing, affordable housing. So let me close by talking about environmental, where we live matters and what that means for both environmental justice, our schools, police community relations, and economic injustice. You're probably all familiar with the landfill that was out on White Street. City Council in 2001 vo voted to close the landfill by 2008. It wasn't that this was a great idea that came to them. It's that there were enough people protesting that they thought maybe we ought to pay attention to this issue. One of the comments that was not infrequently made by folks who were opposed to closing the landfill was that homeowners living nearby, they decided to live there. Now I ask you, think back about the history that we've been through, both in terms of where black households were financially compared to white households, given that what happened in the 30s rolled down to the next generation, to the next generation, to the next generation, and that we'd had redlining, and you're gonna tell me that people chose. I think of choosing, deciding to buy someplace as being a more open decision process than was true in that case. Impact on Greensboro schools. Where were most of the schools that we closed after allegedly desegregating the schools? They were in black neighborhoods. Who lost jobs in that process? Well, we learned from John Batchelor that something like 80% of black principals were either demoted or lost their jobs. They might be kept on, but you couldn't have a black principal over a white assistant principal. Community police relations. Is there a difference between any one of us who's white walking around at dusk in a black neighborhood and a black person walking around at dusk in a neighborhood like Sunset Hills. In which case is there likely to be a call to the police? And what will the police behavior be? Will it be equal? Where we live matters. Economic injustice. For almost 20 years, Northeast Greensboro, after the closing of a grocery store, was a food desert. The community there came together, created a beautiful co-op. Not only did they have a grocery store, 
the community owns it. The community will decide never to pull out, like the corporate decision that pulled out the previous. The community will take the profits and invest them in the community. Thank you very much. to devote some time to talking with each other now. And um, in groups of three or four, with people sitting near you, um, invite you to discuss, um, given what you're learning, how do we continue our own admittedly difficult personal journey of becoming aware of, acknowledging our role in, and accepting responsibility for working with people of color to create racial equity. So how do we work together to create racial equity? Um, and if you're a white person, we hope you'll consider the ways our housing system has privileged us and created benefits for us. And if you're a person of color, we'd encourage you to share what you wish white people understood better about the current housing system. And after about five minutes or so, we'll come back together and share insights and um, have more conversation with Professor Morse. And we're serious about the five minutes. Does anyone have anything that you want to share that's come out of your discussion? And if you, if so, if you would come to the mic uh, so we can all hear it. Larry, I've had the, the privilege, that's a good way to put it, of owning a house in a neighborhood that was mixed race, which is rare in Gilbert County. And my experience selling the house was also really good, although I sold to a family of color, having been a white family living in there initially. Um, my neighbors were all people of color, mostly Hispanic, but some black. And um, it's just intriguing to me that the stereotype or the, the, the belief around all that is if you have a house in those neighborhoods, and some of it obviously has been created by policies we've had in this country for many years now, that somehow those houses are worth less money. I did pay less for the house when I bought it. it, it and it accumulated a value less than it might have in another neighborhood, but I did okay, and it wasn't a bad experience for me. So I, how do we change the, 
the perception of what that means to us as anybody as homeowners about where you have your house to accomplish some of the things that you're talking about. I'm not sure I have any really, uh, I don't have clear answers for that, but I, I think we're, we're gradually making progress in the city. We're making some progress nationally. There's some things that from time to time will yank us up and say, no, we haven't, as in the case of the 4th of July event in which a young black man was jumped on by some other people. And when the police arrived, they didn't ask. By, the by that time, the, the folks around him had run. And rather than asking him what they could do for him, they were accusatory and in, ended up the officers slamming the kid to the ground, 15 years old. And the end result is, after some hitting on him, holding his neck, that he was coughing blood, and he got some blood on the officer's uniform. And so he was charged with assaulting an officer. So we're there, and we're not there. Today's city council is being challenged to make available to the public the video that was taken by, other, by the police. So we'll see whether the council hides behind laws and doesn't make it available or chooses to be courageous and make it available. Um, so we're changing, but we're changing very slowly. That's, that's all I can say. And we, we just got to keep pushing in that same direction. And, and part of it is, I mean, one, one piece that, that, that's positive is one of the ways that the landfill got closed and one of the ways in which the co-op got started was there were a number of white folks over on the west side of town who participated in those two processes. So we can build, and, but we've got a long piece to undig from. Larry, uh, uh, the lively young lady by the name of Carolyn, just met, um, was talking about how much of an enriching experience it was for her to be involved in the uh, co-op project, the Renaissance Co-op. I guess to respond a little bit to the question of what, what can we do in the housing arena, um, you know, you can't expect to change housing and have the housing system work if you don't change all the other support systems around it. Um, so a, a, a wonderful sort of microcosm of this, which is happening in Greensboro, um, is the Willow Oaks community, which was the replacement for Morningside Homes. Beautiful homes were built that anywhere else in Greensboro would be $200,000 houses. Um, but if the schools weren't addressed, school issues weren't addressed, if the shopping issues weren't addressed, uh, if some of the other economic issues weren't addressed, then that community is not going in the direction it needs to go. 
And so now we've got homeowners in that community that are underwater because they invested in a dream that has not yet been completed because all those other pieces of the puzzle aren't in place yet. So you know, we've got to figure out ways to address multiple sectors to change the dynamics of the housing in our community. There was a uh, Betsy and I, a group of two, uh, <laughs> your wife and her husband decided they wanted to go to another group. <laughs> uh, decided the best thing to do was work long term. And, and we think long term means bringing more young people into this movement. Uh, and as a member of GARE, I can tell you we've begun to do that. Uh, after chasing them away for a long time, we weren't active enough in what we were doing to make to, to satisfy them. The other thing, uh, what so we were saying, more and more people need to be, if not joining Gary, getting to a racial equity institute presentation. That will bring to light so much of this and bring so much clarity to your mind about what's going on and what what needs to be done. But the other half of it is that we need to be doing more of what we're doing tonight. And I want to commend Jack and Betsy because after they went through a workshop, they started one in their own church. And they've been working at it for two years now. And if everybody in this room did that, we'd have a, an explosion, an exponential explosion of the number of people we're reaching. So I encourage you to, to keep that in mind and, and keep the Racial Equity Institute workshops in mind. Okay. Um, I am curious, uh, there's two questions that kind of tie together. Um, you've mentioned in 1960, uh, President Kennedy forbade discrimination by the Housing Authority or by banks, but there was another date right after that on the same slide, 1962 was when um, some enforcement, or that's when the data we have about the, the loans, the aggregate total being 90 something percent to white folks. I was wondering what what the two-year gap was. Was 1962 when it started to be enforced? The answer uh, on the part of scholars is often you go by what are the available data. Okay. And that's the first, <laughs> 62 is the one breakdown that I've seen of the total $120 billion that have passed through the hands of FHA and been as well distributed by VA. So they're unrelated to the, the Kennedy okay. executive order. Well, so that ties into this other part of my question, which is, what is the current state of data collection? Um, you mentioned that in 1981, the Federal Reserve stopped collecting uh, data by race. So do you know what the current state of data collection is um, in housing loan um, loans nationally? But also, what are the sources of data that you're aware of that we can get locally about how banks are making loans in our communities right now? Stephen Sills obviously got access to Metropolitan, uh, Greensboro, and High Point bank acceptance and rejections by race. So clearly the process has changed. I can't imagine that our local banks are the only ones doing it. Um, so though he 
may be unhappy with this, I can give you Stephen's um, <laughs> contact information. <laughs> so yes, it's, I mean, we're getting better at it. We're collecting more data. I mean, we're, we're, we know that there are some folks who think that if we don't collect data about climate change, that it doesn't exist. If we don't collect data on the racial disparities and we don't collect data by race, then racial disparities can't exist. We've, that's part of what we've got to continue to push, that we collect the information that lets us understand how well or how poorly we're doing in closing the racial gaps. Well, everything you said uh, in, your, in your presentation, Professor, was absolutely on point. And uh, this is my first time coming um, to this uh, particular type of session, although I've been uh, reading about them for the past, I'd say, about six months. So it was very interesting and very mind-opening uh, for this presentation you had, Professor. All right, I have a few questions. Um, my first question is, I say, right uh, around the street down the corner from uh, the co-op I stay in uh, Woodmere Park. Based on what I'm seeing so far, I don't see the co-op having the, the traffic, I should say, to be able to sustain itself in the future. Uh, what kind of, uh, <coughs> what would you say needs to be done to, to further encourage the community surrounding the co-op to better support it? The co-op board is well aware of those difficulties. They know that they need to do more outreach. They want more households in the neighborhood to become owners. I mean, it's, it's a $100 membership, but they have a way in which you can pay that off over a number of, over a period of time. Um, I got my first group on today from them. <laughs> so, so it's, it's any, any business starting out, I mean, Deep Roots that moved downtown, they struggled for their first couple of years that they were in their new location. They're still working at it. Um, so it's, it's not, an easy, uh, not an easy process. Larry, there's also, there's also the problem of the uh, the consciousness of people, and this has been articulated by the president of the board himself, John Jones, um, that uh, there's this some sense that it's not, I'm sorry, there's a sense that there's not a, sorry about that. Um, and th this has come up uh, several times uh, in the meetings of the RCC board and the membership, and I'm a member, as, as are a number of people here. So we're, we're very conscious of the fact of what the leadership of the board is telling the rest of the membership is. And one of the main problems in, in, in the neighborhood is uh, the sense that it wasn't a full service grocery store, okay? And so people just get it into their minds that it's not a full service grocery store, so People do what they normally do. They go to Walmart, or they even though they have to get out, they have to go beyond their community to the Walmart. They do it because somebody told them that it's not a, a full-service grocery store. So that's just 
that's a minor thing, but it also is major because that's how people sort of think. And the, the RCC has to do a better, we all as members have to do a better job of making sure that. Well, is, is it a full service? Yes, it is. It is a full service. Absolutely. And the prices are tremendous, and the food is great, and the employees are amazing, and it's just a, it's just a great experience. Join the co-op. It's a great experience. Thank you. I have a, a macroeconomics question for you, Professor. When we when we experienced the recession in 2008, it meant that our GDP was falling well short of, of projections. And with, with the banking industry moving persons of color into subprime loans, that, seemed, that would seem to have a negative impact on our GDP. So why wouldn't they make a more responsible decision um, to, to getting persons of color in, in uh, more conventional loans to have a positive impact on our GDP? The simple answer, and I think it's the, the, the correct answer, is what we discovered in investigating the subprime crisis was that agents, commissions, were much higher if you wrote a subprime loan than if you wrote a conventional loan. So the interest of the individual writers, the interests of the lender corporations themselves was, to put it in a word, driven by greed and sort of where GDP went on this was, that was too bad. Um, that isn't in the mindset of the typical corporate world. So that's. So in a sense, we cut off our noses by our face. One other thing that I would add is when, you know, besides the differences in the disparities in housing, small, Black-owned businesses tend to be noticeably smaller than white-owned businesses. The smaller the business, the more fragile it tends to be financially. And when you run into a financial crisis, as the capitalist speculators took us to, and banks closed down on their lines of credit, if you're a big enough enterprise, you can have other resources or have enough of your own resources that you can continue to meet payroll and continue to pay your invoices. If you're small, it may mean, and in many cases it did mean, you went under because you couldn't get a loan. You couldn't get the income stream to keep yourself going. And so that's, that, you know, we don't think about how Things like a financial crisis, yeah, a lot of stuff went down and that was hard, but almost invariably you gotta ask the question, what were the racial disparities in this? And they were, as usual, quite substantial. There was, um, it's a domino effect. 
because when you have economic disparity, you have housing disparity, job disparity, it all intertwines. And what I'm curious about now is what is being done? I took a, a class in Pat Greensboro for nine months, and we went into the housing situation, went into a lot of this discussion with racial disparity. Uh, and at that time, Mayor Vaughn was not mayor, and she took the same course. And I know it had a big impact on her, but what I would like to know now is how do you get commercial developers to move into neighborhoods that deserve to have uh, opportunities, job opportunities, um, buying opportunities. What is the solution there? Because that is the key to also increasing the value of housing. So where do we go from here? Because I feel they've taken a step back. They're not taking the risk. And that's what we need to have. I think the, the co-op offers an important part of the solution in the following way. The city's incentive program to get employers to either move to Greensboro or they've come back for a second time and with a threat that we'll leave if you don't give us another incentive is they've gone after large businesses. They, I think, and let me tie this again to the co-op. We need to grow more locally owned and preferably worker owned or community owned businesses. The supermarket that closed in Northeast Greensboro was making a profit. It didn't close because of losses. It closed because corporate headquarters, wherever they were in Ohio or wherever, said that the profit margin wasn't large enough, so we're going to close. Well, it's, we got to do more like the Green Bay Packers. They're not going to move. <laughs> we got to own our own economic Green Bay Packers. And then they don't move. They understand the local climate. They cater to what we need. We've got to build more. We've got, if we do these kinds of things of building more locally owned and worker co-ops and community-based co-ops, we can provide some economic shelter for ourselves in terms of our local economy compared to the windstorms that could produce elsewhere in the U.S. economy. So we have one more question. And let me just suggest that for those of you who want to, if you give me your email addresses, I will send you some material about Democracy Greensboro. This is a group that's working on a platform to serve the needs of the 99%, not the 1%. And we have three main areas of operation. Of thinking. One is on issues of economic justice, social justice, and police and community relations. The goal is to build a large enough movement that we can sway the outcomes in the city council elections. 
It's um, actually, I, I had two comments, um, not a question. And I can't agree with your <coughs> previous statement more. And this really has to come from understanding how systems work. And by understanding how they work, you understand what they're going to do and what they're always going to do. We live in an economic system which was formulated precisely to benefit a few people yes. and to be the detriment of the vast majority of people. That system is never going to reform itself. And as long as we keep thinking that that system can reform itself, the longer we're going to be going to funerals of young people being shot down, the more we're going to be looking in the news of people losing their jobs and losing their homes. So we have to decide. We have to use a little bit of critical analysis and come to the recognition that that system cannot be reformed. And if it can't be reformed, you have to build new systems systems that actually operate to benefit the majority of the people rather than the minority of the people. Which now brings me to my second point. Um, to do that kind of thinking, you really have to be trained in the scientific method. You will note that the current despotic government <laughs> wishes to take away our ability to do that. And they're working really hard. So I heard discussions of things like climate change and how if you don't believe in climate change, if you don't collect data, there is no climate change. If you don't believe in racial health disparity, don't collect the data. There's no racial health disparity. Well, we have to send a message to these folks that that kind of thinking and that kind of operation is not okay. So therefore, I am asking you to join me in Greensboro on April 22nd at one of the local marches for science. There's a national march in Washington, D.C. There are three local marches in North Carolina, one in Raleigh, one in Greensboro, and one in Charlotte. You can find out about our organizing activity on Facebook. Just search March for Science Greensboro. There's a web page. There's a list of activities. Uh, we're going to have speakers from both major universities. We're going to have bands there. We're going to have activities for the kids. Tell everybody you know. We need to make our presence known. And we need to send a message to this government that we are not going to stand for this anymore. All right. I want to um, thank you all for your engaged participation and say to you that we, we hope that, um, that in your next steps in fighting racism that we can be alongside of you, that we'll be collaborating in a number of ways as we work for a more racially equitable society. Um, next month, May 2nd, we focus on the history of the um, International Civil Rights Museum. And in June, we'll focus on implicit bias. Um, please sign the registration sheet on the table over there. Um, if you haven't done that already, please do that. We'll, we'd love to send you um, updates on what we're doing and also resources that, that Larry mentioned earlier. Um, we also want to thank Reverend B.J. Owens and St. Andrews for hosting us yet again, and um, we really appreciate your hospitality. And we thank Fusion Films 
for their filming this presentation this evening. Um, you can see this year's whole series and also last year's. There were some wonderful um, speakers that you can catch up with. Um, if you'd like to make a donation to help offset the expense of Fusion being with us, um, please find the basket on the table and you can make your contribution as you exit. So thank you so much and thank you, Larry, for your input. Thank you.